Do you want to write a book? We've interviewed a couple of book specialists on the podcast over the past couple of years, but in those interviews, we focused on nonfiction books that you could use to grow your business. But a lot of copywriters want to write something a little more creative, something like a short story or a screenplay or a novel. Today's guest for the Copywriter Club podcast is best-selling novelist Mary Adkins, who has published three novels and in addition to writing, helps others figure out how to write and publish their own work. This is a pretty fun discussion that got us thinking about writing something that could be turned into a movie instead of a workshop. And if you listen between the lines, there are a lot of good ideas and some good advice that applies to copywriting too. But first, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Accelerator. This is our program designed to give you everything you need to start your copywriting business, to pivot your copywriting business if you're changing it up, or to grow your copywriting business if you feel like you've hit a plateau. So we have blueprints, we have structure so you know what to do, or we provide coaching and an incredible community so that you can work through and build your business with your peers and you don't have to do it alone. We're kicking it off in August, and you can jump on the waitlist if you want to learn more about that program. Just click on the link in our show notes, and you'll hear more information about it soon. Let's get into our interview with Mary. I always loved creative writing since I was in seventh grade, actually, is when my, my English teacher turned me on to creative writing, and I, I loved it, and I always wanted to be a writer. But at some point along the way, I... I don't know. I think I, I lost some confidence and felt like I needed to do something more practical and wound up in law school, which I actually think is a pretty common path for a lot of writers and a lot of creative people. And so I, I went to law school. I liked law school. It was, um, I really enjoyed it. I like being a student and I, I liked learning. And um, so that was a good experience. But as soon as I actually became a lawyer after law school, it, it was pretty clear to me immediately that it was not a good fit for me. I wanted to be writing. And that's really what I knew. And like, as soon as I got this job, like, I don't, I don't want to be doing this. I, I want to be writing. And so I pretty quickly, I mean, under a year, I left law completely so that I could prioritize launching a writing career. And I quit my job and, and went back to tutoring which to pay my bills, which is what I was doing before I went to law school, and moved apartments, moved to a cheaper apartment. I was living in New York City and had to change my lifestyle to, <laughs> to afford it. Started just, I would tutor in the evenings and I would write during the day. And I didn't know what I wanted to write. I, I was, I, I did some copyright, some freelance copywriting. I did some freelance journalism. I published some personal essays, just kind of got some odd writing jobs here and there. But mostly I was interested in, in writing and publishing a book. I knew that that's ultimately what I wanted to do. And ideally like more than one. And so I set about taking writing classes to figure out how to do that. And I started with a memoir. I thought I, I would, that, that was my first big idea was that I was going to write a memoir. So I learned how to, how to write and publish a memoir, which is, um, at least at the time, which was, this was like 2010, the way that, that you sold a memoir was on proposal, which is largely the still, still the way it's done. Um, sometimes it's a little different depending on the type of book and who you are. But um, I put together this memoir proposal 
and uh, started sending it out to literary agents, which is how you, you get a traditional publishing book deal still. And long story short, I got a lot of no's. I got a lot of rejections. And one of them wrote back though and said, he said, well, I could have sold the hell out of this in the 90s, but <laughs> I can't now. So do you have anything else? And I didn't have anything else, but I think at this point I had learned that you never say that. <laughs> you always, you never say you don't have something else. So I said, well, what, what could you sell now? And he said, uh, a novel. Could you, do you have a novel idea? And I actually did have a novel idea. I just hadn't had the confidence to write it yet. So I wrote a little paragraph about this novel idea to him. And he was the first person I had shared this novel idea with, but I wrote it in, in an email and he wrote back, Oh, that sounds like, that sounds great. I love this concept, write the novel and then send it to me. And that is really what launched my career as a novelist because I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I didn't have the confidence to write a novel. Like, I, I think I just thought, well, that that's something that people who are a lot smarter than me do. Like, I don't know how to do that. I hadn't even written a short story that I liked. So how could I possibly write a novel? Like, much longer fiction. So getting that per sort of permission slip from that literary agent is why I wrote a novel. And, and that novel became my first novel. And I've since written and published three. And, and I think of myself primarily as a novelist. And so, um, so I'm really grateful to him for that because, and he didn't end up becoming my literary agent, by the way. <laughs> um, I did send it to him and uh, once I was finished and um, he never offered to represent me, but I, you know, I did find obviously another, another path to publication through another agent um, who is, is my agent to, to date and is wonderful. But that, that's essentially my story of getting published. And in terms of my, my, the program I now run, the book incubator, I realized after my first book came out that I had had this kind of long and meandering path to publication. It, it my, my, not that novel, that first novel that I wrote came out in 2019 and, and I had started it in, um, early 2012. So it was a seven year process and I, I didn't, I didn't have any regrets about that process. I mean, it was, it was my path, but it was also, I think kind of unnecessarily like solitary. And I learned a lot through trial and error and I hobbled together how to do a lot of things to get to ultimately like write the novel well and get a book deal. And I, I took a lot of classes that were, that were not helpful and that I think actually derailed me for a while. And so I decided to put together, um, what I learned into a, into a writing course. I just started with one course. I'm like, I'm going to put this course online and I'll teach people what I wish I had known. And that first course I put together was just around how to write the novel, how to write the first draft of the novel. And people started taking it and they loved it. And then they want, they were like, well, how do I revise it now? So then I put a course together on how to revise the novel. And then they took that and they liked that. And then they were like, how do I pitch it now? How do I get a book deal? And so I put that. So like eventually it kind of grew into this all inclusive, how to write, revise and pitch your book to get a book deal year long program, which is what I run now, the book incubator. Um, so now, yeah, sorry, that's a long story short. That's my six minute version. <laughs> Lots of stuff to cover in there. I want to go back to when you were just starting out as a writer and that experimentation phase, 
I mean, I have a lot of questions about this, but you were trying a lot of different things. What was it that kept you going? What was it that, you know, made you say, okay, I'll try this or I'll try this. I know you wanted to be a writer, but talk us through that experimentation phase and how you kind of found the path to the thing that you wanted to do. I, I think a lot of writers get stuck here thinking that, you know, well, I want to be a writer. And then maybe a lot of them end up as copywriters because they just never get past the thing. And it's like, well, I can make money copywriting. But yeah, talk about that phase for us. When you said what kept you going, the first thing that came to mind was was like glimmers of affirmation. I, f- I feel like whenever I would get, you know, like pub- publishing my first essay was my first personal essay. It was like an essay about me in a newspaper. It was the New York Daily News. And it was just so affirmative. I thought like, okay, well, I can do this. And and even if, you know, that meant I had, I had submitted 12 other pieces that all got rejections, that one piece was enough to keep me going. I mean, it's funny because looking back, I'm remembering some of the kind of the, the different kinds of writing gigs I got. And they all kind of felt like using different parts of my writing brain um, in a way that was kind of fun, you know, like exercising different parts of your body. <laughs> um, I I got this this one gig from a an entrepreneur who was starting an app, and it was going to be like a video messaging app. This is so funny looking back because it's like I don't know how 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 much tech and and apps have changed since then. But this was like 2011. He's going to start this video messaging app, and he wanted these video. These were going to be scripted videos of actors like doing little funny skits and he wanted me to write the skits. And so I just wrote all these tiny little comedy bits, <laughs> which was, uh, which was super fun and not, you know, something I also didn't really feel qualified for, but like had a lot of fun doing and kind of a fake it till you make it type thing. I think was a lot of my, a lot of my early writing was like fake it till you make it, you know, just sort of write like see how people respond, put it out there and and try to learn from that. It sounds like you've really built confidence as you've grown your writing career and your business. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I do. And I, I think a lot of, you know, I notice it now because I work with right. I feel like so many of the writers I work with need permission, need permission slips, like, like I did. Um, to do it. And I I don't know, I don't know if that's always confidence or if it's a combination of like confidence and, um, working on their, their day job or whatever it is. I, it may not be confidence, but I do feel like a lot of us need someone to tell us it's okay to do this thing. Like it's okay for you to try it and to devote time to working on it. I mean, I certainly did. Yeah. Like you, like you noticed. And I I think there's also an element here where writing is communication, right? Like it's writing is a two way street. It's not a one way street. And if we know like inherently that if we're doing it well, then people, then the person who's reading the writing is having like an experience and hopefully an experience that we wanted them to have so that there's this mutual understanding. And so I think it makes sense that, sometimes, especially when we're just starting out, we need someone to say like, you're doing, you're going in the right direction, or this is good writing, or you're doing this well, or, um, or keep going because otherwise 
like, you know, it's just talking to, and, and there's no one to listen to you to tell you if they understand what you're saying, <laughs> you know? So I think it makes sense that, that, that a lot of times as writers, we, we need some external, um, some external kind of both validation and feedback. I mean, that said, I do, the, the part of my story I kind of skipped over a moment ago, those seven years of working on my book, the writing classes that I was primarily taking were feedback based where we would submit, we would, you know, and these were all kinds of writing classes, essay classes, short story classes, um, journalism classes, but we would submit our work to the class and get feedback from our peers. And I, I landed in a place of not, I I don't believe that's the best model. I actually think it's too, um, peer feedback is not uh, an ideal way to help someone become a better writer, especially early on. So, um, I don't teach that way at all. So I think there's like a happy, happy medium between, you know, getting, getting like that little bit of validation we need to keep going, but also not subjecting ourselves to like just an onslaught of feedback. The the second we write something because it, it, it's just so hard to even like, carry through a vision when, you know, you've only written part of the thing that you're writing and you have 14 people each giving you all the reasons why you need to redo it. (laughs) Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because it it seems to me, at least in my own experience, when I've written things and I'm thinking, oh, you know, maybe this is the book idea or whatever. And then I come back to it, uh, you know, a few days later, a week, two later, and I'm like, ah, this is garbage. I would be embarrassed to show this to somebody, but it, but it feels like you need to get feedback that says, actually, you're on the right path here. Keep going. And why is peer feedback not the right? Yeah. Okay. I love talking about this. So the way I like to think about the way I like to talk about it is I feel like, and this is kind of ridiculous, I know, but I, the analogy I use is it, it's like if a bunch of people got together in a room to learn how to fly a plane. So a bunch of aspiring pilots are in a room and they're ready to learn how to fly a plane. And the teacher comes in and says, okay, the way you're going to learn how to fly a plane is that all of you are going to guess how to fly a plane and then give each other feedback on your guesses. <laughs> like that, that you're right. It would take, I mean, maybe they'd eventually figure it out, but, but I mean, it, it felt like that. And it, it, right. Peer feedback feels like that both when I'm giving back in the day when I was giving it and when I was receiving it, because typically in these classes, no one would tell us how to give feedback, how to give constructive feedback, um, how to receive the feedback. Do we, do I stop writing right now and incorporate everything everyone's saying, or do I keep going and then come back later? How do I filter it? How do I decide whether to take the feedback or not? Who's right and who isn't? Do I, if someone just says they don't like something, does that mean I should change it? Like, I don't, you know, it's, it was just such a mess. And I, I think, um, you know, to your point about like going back and, and reading what you wrote and thinking, oh, this is garbage. I think that happens to a lot of us when we, and, and why we stop. Like, I, I feel like I very often will start working with someone who has the beginnings of a whole bunch of books, but none of them, like all of them were abandoned at some point. And I, I would totally be that person too if I, if I went back and read, which is why I don't do that. So, um, and the way I like to encourage writers to tackle a, a book draft 
is not to go back and read anything because you will hate it. <laughs> I, for me, it's just part of the process. Like you, you just hate it, but that doesn't make mean it's bad. Like we're like, we're, I think we're pretty bad at knowing how good something is as we're writing it or when we're too close to it. And then And parts of it will be pretty rough, but I I like to think of the first draft as just one version of the story. It's not necessarily a bad version of the story. Like, you know, there's the whole crappy first draft idea that I think some people subscribe to because it makes them feel less pressure in writing the first draft. I never liked the idea of a crappy first draft because I I thought, well, if if it's going to be bad, I don't want to do it at all. (laughs) Um, So I like thinking of the first draft as just one version of the story. And and ultimately, it, it will have elements of that in it when it's in its final form after I revise, but there will also be parts that are different. Like everything in there is sort of a placeholder and either it will get to stay or it will go, but we have to get that one version of it down first so that it exists, you know, so that it, so that it exists at all. And there's something there that can be, that can be shaped and polished and then it will be something we're proud of. But like that sort of shaping and polishing for me never happened until after I had the thing itself down in the first place. So I think if you, when we subject it to feedback right away, people are giving feedback like this opening was boring. Well, it's like, okay, but, but that's because it's not even a draft yet. So like, but first we have to figure out what the story is and then we can make the beginning interesting. Like that could be helpful feedback on the third draft, but on the first draft, you can't worry about whether your opening is boring because you don't even know what the story is yet. Like you have to figure out what that is first. Mary, how do we know what topic our book should be about? Yeah, I love that question. I, so the way I think about it is, what is the one that you're burning to write? Because I I find that often people, I mean, if they have a few ideas, there's one that's just really calling to them. At least that's the case for me. I I may have a couple things, but there's one that's like, this is the book that, that is wanting to be written, or this is the idea that's wanting me to explore it. And so I think what I'll tell people often is like, be really honest with yourself, but like, what is the, what is the burning one? Like, which is the one you're really like, that's the one. If I'm really just not trying to think about like, what's the most sellable or what other people, um, what, what I guessing other people would want to read. What's the one that I most want to write? Because it's such a huge project. I mean, it's about 70,000 words is sort of a good, of course, all books are different links, but I I think of 70,000 as a words as a good target for a first draft. So if you're going to sit down and write 70,000 words, it's got to be something that you really care about or you're going to stop doing it, you know? So that's one thing that I like to suggest. And then another thing is that the first thing I do with people when they join my program is find what their big book idea is. And the way we find a book, a big book idea is by articulating it as a question. So there's some big human, like thorny question at the heart of any story And it should be the kind of question that like you as the writer truly feel like you could spend a whole book addressing and exploring because you're going to. So, and I really love addressing it or framing it as a question because 
I think when we, when we frame it as a question, we come in with the spirit of curiosity and openness rather than thinking like, oh, I have a thesis, you know, or like a theme, which is a statement. And then, then it, it's just more closed off. If you think of it as like, this is a theme of my book, or this is a thesis statement. And often, I mean, especially with those of us writing fiction, we don't know what theme is yet. Like theme, theme is something we f- could figure out after we've written it. But what we can go in with is a big question we want to answer. So for example, in my first novel, the first novel opens with this woman who has gotten she's 33 and she's gotten a terminal diagnosis. And so she knows that she's going to die in six months. And she is at a place in her life where she, she'd wanted to start a bakery, but she hasn't started it. She wanted a family, but she, she doesn't have one. So this whole time she's felt like her life was, she was waiting for her life to begin. And it was just kind of just over the horizon. She was going to start the bakery. She'd been saving for it, but she hadn't yet. And then she finds out that what she thought was her just the warm up for her life was her entire life. Like it's done. And she has to come to terms with that somehow. So the big question was, how do you, how do you accept an unlived life? And when you don't have a chance to keep going. And that was a question that I not only felt like I could spend a whole book answering, but like, but I felt like I needed to, like, I needed to answer that for myself. I, that, that question was tormenting me. And, um, because I'd recently lost a friend very young and and it was just on my mind. And so it was a really good, powerful engine kind of, I can think of it as like an engine for my motivation and for my persistence because it was so sincere and I cared about it really deeply. And so that's what I encourage people to do for, for a big, for something like a book project, right? Where you're going to have to show up day after day for months. You really want something that's, that's kind of big and that um, matters to you. And I, I like phrasing it as a question. So let's say that you've got that question. You've got this idea for the book. And as you write, you maybe hit 25,000 words or 30,000 words. And you get to this point where it's like, actually, I'm no longer interested in this question, or I don't have words or I hate, I actually hate the story that yeah. has come out of my fingers or maybe in, in a copywriter's world, it's not a book, but they've gone into a niche, you know, and it's like at some point, you know, I don't want to write another website for a tech company, or I'm so tired of working with these online gurus, you know, they're prima donnas, whatever. I got to change. Like, how do you, how do you address when you're writing stuff you hate? The way that I do that with, with a book project, and then we can translate it to the, your, the other sphere is, is by reminding people or, or telling people that like, it's not you, like you are not, you are not the problem. It's not that you're you're failing to show up or you're, um, you're bad at writing or you had a terrible idea initially. Usually it's just that something in your story needs to change. It's just time for a pivot. It's time, it's time for there to be some kind of new action that shifts the world around for these characters. So like, if you're bored, if you're showing up and you're bored or you're just like, Oh, I'm over this, then the reader probably is too. (laughs) So we got to find a way to bring some excitement in whatever that is. And often that in, in a, in a single project, if you're in one project, often that's bringing something new into the project itself. So 
and a new, if it's fiction, a new event or a new character. I mean, something that really shakes things up. If it's fiction or nonfiction, it could be like changing up the structure, dropping something in. Like suddenly let's just write a whole email conversation. Let's, let's write a text message thread. Let's put in a newspaper article or some drawings or just something to sort of shake up the process so that you can get excited about it again, because that energy is coming through the writing, you know? And I think in the, if I, if I try to translate that to the, to the situation you described where you're, you've kind of like niched yourself and you don't, you're not feeling excited about working with that niche anymore. I think it could be helpful maybe to think about the same thing. So is there like a way to change the material itself? I mean, if you, if you can't break out of this niche, like that, that sounds easier said than done. Right. So like there's obviously trying to break out of the niche into, you know, finding, finding a different niche or, or drifting that's going to come with its own challenges. So then it's like, can, well, can you change up the work itself so that you're doing it slightly differently and it becomes interesting to you again? So Mary, it took you around seven years to write the first draft of your book and complete your book. Yes, that's right. Is that typical for writers uh, when they write their first book? Um, is that something that we should expect when we sit down to write our first book? I think it's pretty typical for the first book. But honestly, the reason I started my program is so that it wouldn't take people that long. <laughs> um, because I the, the thing that took so long was that I didn't know how to write a novel. I mean, I, I, I actually Googled, I remember sitting down and Googling how long is a novel and reading 70,000 words and thinking, well, I'll just write that many words. Like I'll just write until I hit 70,000 and that will be a novel, which is what I did. That's what I did. And so the first draft really, I did I mean, you know, I shared my, the big question of my first book a moment ago, but I didn't go into that with that big question. I figured that out much later. And so, you know, that's what I, that's what I do now. And that's what I teach now. But at the time it was really, it was a lot of throwing spaghetti at the wall and just seeing what, stuck. And so there was that, that took a long time. I mean, I probably rewrote this novel 12 or 13 times. So that takes time. Um, but there was also, that was on the creative side. Then on the sort of professional pitching side, I also didn't know how to do that. So, um, I didn't know how to reach out to literary agents in an effective way, how to find the right agents, how to pitch them. So that took some time. And so I, seven years was long and, and I think it's long for a lot of us for that, for that reason, for similar reasons, but it doesn't have to be that long. Like I, I do think, you know, if you can find a mentor or, you know, like a program like mine that helps you kind of get, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that as a sales pitch. I mean this genuinely that like helps you cut through a lot of the trial and error just to figure out how to do it right. You can cut that time down, but it is it is a long journey. Like publishing is not a short process. I mean, people are sometimes surprised to hear this, but the the typical timeline from when you actually get the book deal to when the book hits shelves is two years. And that's after you get the book deal. <laughs> so that's, you, you sign the contract and then two years later, um, the book is, you know, coming out um, and showing up in Barnes and Noble. So that timeline has been true for all of my books and it's been true, um, or even a little longer for friend for author friends of mine. So I, it's pretty, it's pretty typical and that that's for traditional publishing. So that's if you're, if you have a publisher who's buying the rights to publish your book, you know, self-publishing can be done much more quickly if people want to go that route. 
So Mary, specifically about your first book, and I think the idea that you were sharing with this unlived life, like the way you wrote this book isn't what I would call a traditional narrative. It's like in bits and pieces, blog posts, emails, that kind of thing. Do you think that that approach helped get your first book accepted or was it the story, some combination? Was it an awesome proposal letter? Like what was it that got you that first in? Yeah, I think that was, um, and I'm so happy you know that about my first book. Um, I think that was, I think that really helped like that. It was an unconventional kind of format, but I think in terms of like what could be helpful for others to know about that, I don't think the takeaway is like, try to like find a way of doing it differently. I think, or the takeaway for me was find what I did really well. So like I, I kept rewriting this book and kept rewriting this book. And for most of the first, I mean, I told you, I think I wrote it 12 or 13 times. And for like 11 of those 12 or 13 times, it was not like that. It was not written in all emails and blog posts and text messages and like Domino's pizza receipts. It was, it had some of those, but it was a lot of also traditional prose, but I never felt great about the sort of traditional prose part. That part was always a slog. It was always the part that I just didn't feel that great about that I would get feedback from agents like wasn't working as well. And I just remember at some point, and I don't know how it finally clicked, but thinking, okay, well, the the parts everybody says are working, (laughs) the part and the parts that I feel good about are the, the unconventional parts or like the emails and the blog posts that that stuff seems fine. Like no one is complaining about those parts. And I like writing those parts. What if I just made the entire book out of that? Like, what if the story were just told through those sort of found kind of found documents and virtual communications? And, um, that was it. That was what unlocked it for me was, was doing that. Because as soon as I did that, that draft was the next one that, that landed me, my literary agent. And then the ultimately the version of the book that came out was that one. So I think it was, it was leaning into what I, what I was kind of hearing from others and what I was sensing myself was my strongest suit. Okay, Kira, so let's break in here. You and I have talked in the past about possibly writing a screenplay or maybe even a book. I know you've had some ideas like that. So I have a feeling you're kind of enjoying this discussion, but what stood out to you from this part of the uh, the interview? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think anytime we talk with an author, um, a book creator, it's just is so inspiring, especially if they have a program where there's some type of structure and guidance, it feels more achievable and like it's possible for anyone. Um, You and I have talked about this. And so this is something that's been on my bucket list for a very long time. And talking to Mary uh, definitely gave me some ideas I could use. I think for me, the book is a long game. And so I realized that I don't have that burning, how does she put it? The book you're burning to write. Uh, I don't have that specific book yet, and I'm still in a stage where there are a lot of different directions I could go. So what I'm doing, because I think it's really easy to get in that stuck in that stage where you're like, well, I don't know what to write, and I don't have that burning desire for a specific book, so I'm not going to do anything. And so I'm experimenting with some ideas around even a new, like a new podcast I could create where I could test different book ideas. 
and each episode could be a different topic so that I could really see what resonates and maybe pull a book idea from that. Because for me, I mean, obviously like with podcasting, it's so much easier. It's, it doesn't intimidate me the way a book intimidates me. So it feels like a more approachable route for someone like me to ultimately get to the end goal of creating a book that I feel great about. So that's how I'm approaching it right now. And I'm, you know, making some progress with baby steps. Um, but what about you, Rob? I know you're thinking about different books. Um, are you pursuing it? Or are you still trying to figure out which book to write? Well, I, I, before I answer that question, because you got me thinking, like, I'm trying to think, and maybe you know some, or maybe there aren't any, but do you know of any podcasts that have become books or that have started? At, well, I think, I know there's like some nonfiction ones, like um, This Will Make You Smarter or you know some stuff like that, that I think have turned episodes into books and some philosophy ones. I'm curious though, if there's, any that have become fiction and maybe some listeners know of one or two that, that have, I'd love to know that. I, I, I'm throwing, I'm not necessarily asking that question. I'm just kind of throwing it out there. Cause I'm like, huh, I wonder uh, how that process works, but I, I like it as an idea to explore ideas. Yeah. I know of a lot of authors who, you know, launched the book and then they started the podcast. So I think it could be fun. Again, it's just easier for me to think about a podcast and content in terms of podcasting than chapters in a book. It's like, oof, that's intimidating, but this is less intimidating. Yeah. I, I think, I think actually that could be a really effective approach. Um, and it's something I hadn't considered before. So now you got my brain spinning a little bit, but like if I were writing, I'm a big fan of thrillers and detective novels. You know, like Michael Connelly is one of my favorite authors. I love reading, you know, Lee Child and Ian Rankin. And it's usually, you know, a, a police procedural or a detective or a spy or something like that. And so when I think about writing fiction, that's kind of where my brain goes. Uh, I'm I'm not going to be, you know, the next Pulitzer winner or somebody that's going to be celebrated. Be, Stop. <laughs> Probably not going to be celebrated by the New York Times because I think I would write the kinds of stuff that I enjoy reading. And so, um, and my trouble, I think I said this in our interview is that, you know, I'll sit down and I can write out a scene and I'm like, oh yeah, this is pretty good. And then I come back to it later. And I'm like, this is terrible. Um, and my, and so that's like my one. And, and of course we got some ideas on how to, to overcome that in this interview. But the other thing that I struggle with is plotting. You know, I, I'll have an idea. It's like, okay, I've got this great idea where we can put this government official in a sticky situation and they've got to get out. And then, you know, maybe I can go two or three scenes and I'm just like, huh, where does it even go from there? And that's where I get stuck. So, <laughs> so, you know, maybe I'm a short story guy or a nonfiction guy. I don't know. We'll see. This, Someday. This sounds if, very similar. This sounds similar to business struggles that we all see. <laughs> maybe that's know? what it is. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an idea person. I'm a starter and I need that other person to work with me to, uh, to finish. But um, it's still out there. You know, if I, if I end up writing something someday, who knows, but well, could you, can you, if you write a detective um, novel, can you write me into it and have me be the victim? You, you want to be murdered. You could be, <laughs> I the, be murdered. Yeah. Okay. I, I, deal. Deal. We're, uh, I'm going to make that happen if I ever write a detective novel. Um, but, you know, a lot of the writing that I do, and, and I actually get really excited about nonfiction ideas. And a lot of the stuff that Mary was sharing here isn't just about writing fiction. It's really applicable to any big project that we're taking on, whether it's a book, whether it's something like starting a podcast, whether um, it's a, a course or a new service that we want to offer in our business, the same kinds of hiccups and pitfalls 
drag us down and keep us from accomplishing that work that we're meant to do. And I think really that's what this interview is all about. Yeah, we're, we're talking about books and Mary's books are great beach reads and you know, be sure to check them out. But really what we're talking about here is how do you do that work that you're meant to do? Yeah, a lot of it relates to, I mean, to copywriting businesses and the struggles that we talked about with Mary are similar. It's, you know, having that confidence to move forward with the craft and with your copywriting business. And so I know we talked about glimmers of affirmation and that how that helped Mary move forward um, when she did receive some positive feedback or encouragement, um, sometimes from people she didn't even know um, in the industry and how that helped her. And I know that's something that is really important for copywriters who are starting their business, or even if you're pivoting in your business. I mean, at any stage, I know I need that all the time too. I need, I need affirmation. So um, I think it's important to surround yourself and put yourself in the right environment so you can receive those affirmations. And we're not talking about faux affirmations where people are just like blowing smoke, but really setting yourself up maybe with a community of colleagues who you respect, who could look at what you're doing and provide solid feedback. Um, it could be mentorship, which we've talked about a ton. Um, it could be joining different organizations. It could be reaching out to people you don't know for feedback. So I think that feels really important to me. And I know it's been important for, to a lot of the copywriters we've worked with. Yeah, I, I, you said that really well, and and I don't necessarily want to repeat what you what you've shared here, but her analogy about flying the airplane, I think, is really applicable because we often turn to the wrong people for feedback. Uh, of course, our spouses are are going to be telling us, "Yeah, it's a great idea." Or of course, our friends are going to tell us to to pursue these things that maybe they don't. They're not actually that great because they want to be supportive. They want to tell us that we're on the right track. And to your point, like sometimes our spouses are actually the opposite. Like you know, give it up, get a real job, that kind of a thing, <laughs> which is also not helpful feedback, right? But fine, as you mentioned, the right mentors, the right coaches, the surrounding yourself with the right peers, people who have been there before, people who have built the things that you want to build, written the things you want to write, worked with the kinds of clients that you want to work with. Those are the people that you want to get feedback from. Yeah. People who understand the space. And I think that's where oftentimes like I won't, I won't ever go to family for affirmations or just for um, that direction or feedback I need. Because they just, as much as they want to understand the space that we're in as online marketers, they just can't. Um, so understanding where you can go to get, talk to people who understand it is really important. And I think this could contradict what we've said previously on the podcast about not waiting for permission, like giving yourself permission. So I, I guess we are contradicting ourselves, but I think it's important to 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 do both, to tap yourself on the shoulder and say, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to wait for anyone else to choose me. I'm going to choose myself. And also put yourself in situations where you can still receive those glimmers of affirmation that will help you continue to choose yourself. Well, I think it's part of the, the same process. I mean, Mary pointed out, you know, she started writing stuff before she felt ready. You know, she was writing some comedy stuff and, and you know, there is this it's not really fake it till you make it, but it's put yourself out there until people start to see how great you are. And then as you are putting yourself out there, you start to get the right affirmations from the right people. And you can seek that out. You can seek out that feedback. So I think it's all part of the same process. Yes. And I just want to you know mention again that it took Mary seven years to write. I guess it was the first book, right? 
um, and how she was committed and just made it happen and how this is, it is um, a long journey. And that's why when I'm thinking about my future book, you know, I guess I should set a deadline. Otherwise I might be 80 by the time I write it. But at the same time, I'm okay knowing that it may take time to get it out there into the world. And that's, that's okay because I'm, I'm sold on the process. Um, so I guess it's a balance too of having some type of urgency, but also being okay with the process. And then of course, if you don't want to wait seven years, you join programs like Mary's and you have support so you can get there faster. Right. And you mentioned, you know, you're, you don't yet have that burning topic, that big idea. And unless you've got that, it's probably a little premature to set a deadline anyway. And speaking of the big idea, this is another one of those things I think relates to copywriting. You know, we oftentimes see copy that isn't based on much of an idea at all. It's just kind of throwing out the same kinds of things. And so, you know, if you were to think about as copywriters, you know, how do you get excited about a project or how do you find that thing that's going to create that curiosity and keep you going through a project. That big idea is a, is a big part of that. And we've talked a lot about the big idea in the underground. There's some resources there that people can check out if they're interested in learning more. Okay. Let's get back to our interview with Mary and talk about money. I want to shift gears and talk about <laughs> money. Cause we like to talk about money. So I'm sure you get this question all the time, but today, you know, how much can we make from our books realistically and, and it, how should we approach it? Is it really like, yeah, you can launch a couple of books, publish a couple of books, but you really need to keep your copywriting business going. Yeah. Um, or you need, you know, you need to launch a couple of courses on the side because this is not going to pay your bills. Most likely. Can you just talk a little bit about the money side? Sure. Okay. So I actually, I get this question all the time and I was, I got tired of not being able to answer it accurately. So in so the end of last year, the end of 2021, I gathered a whole bunch of data, self-reported data from authors on this question from surveys that others had taken and from survey I took myself. And so I ended up with about 1,400 responses from authors on what, what their book advance sizes were. And this is, by the way, when we say book advance, this means an advance on the royalties that you'll get. So if you get a traditional book deal, you as the author will get royalties. But when you sign the book deal, you get an advance. And that means like money you get upfront that will ultimately come out of your royalties when the book goes on sale. But the good thing about an advance is you don't have to pay it back. <laughs> so even if your book doesn't sell as well as everyone hopes, and doesn't earn out all of those royalties, you still get to keep the advance money. So that's why advances are really, um, I think what authors, what, what we go for, because it, it's, it's the guaranteed income and no one really knows how well a book will sell. So from that data that I gathered, what I found was that the average advance from 2016 to 2021 in the United States was, and this is across genres, fiction, nonfiction, any kind of book, it was $60,000, six zero. And that was a kind of that was across types of publishers too. just any kind of publisher who was buying a book from someone, it was $60,000. Now, for smaller publishers, it was like $25,000 for, for not the bigger publishers. I think it was so, so they tend to give smaller advances, but remember too, it's just advance money. So advance money is what you're guaranteed, but if your book sells well, then 
you you end up earning you get royalty checks later. So a smaller advance doesn't mean smaller earnings overall necessarily. It just means smaller smaller guaranteed income now. And if your book sells well, you know you could you could definitely earn more later. Um, so I, I kind of the advance size is, is it's what a lot of times people want to know about and want to talk about, but it's just kind of the beginning. A bigger advance means you're less likely to get royalty checks later. A smaller advance means you're more likely to get royalty checks later. So I also have, by the way, like if people want to know more about that, I, I have a whole like blog post and video breaking down how that amount changes for genre. I could, can't remember off the top of my head what those numbers were, but I did break it down by like genre and whether it's your debut or not and that sort of thing. That blog post would be really helpful because I was thinking through, okay, does that number include the Stephen Kings of the world, the Harlan Cobins of the world, or is it you know first time publisher? So we'll definitely link to that post in the show notes so that people can see that. Yeah, that would be great. Cause uh, yeah, exactly. So I get into all the data, like who, what were the outliers who exactly. Um, and it, no, I, I don't think Stephen King's not on the list. <laughs> um, but there are, there were a couple of really high earners on the list, but I also included medians, So people could see when we, when we don't factor in those outliers, what, like, you know, what 50% of people make. Um, and then the last thing I want to say too, in case it's helpful is that advances the the standard way that advances are paid out in North America, at least right now, is in three parts. So you get a third of it when you sign the book deal. You get a third of it when the manuscript is completely done and goes off to production to be printed. And then you get a third of it when the book actually hits shelves. So that's something important to think about too, when you're thinking about, you know, the future and what you could afford to do is like the, the overall size of your payment is not something you will get at once. And because of that timeline I talked about of two years, you, I think it's wise to expect that you will make that money over two years, three installments over two years. Yeah. Okay. And is there an opportunity to negotiate that as a first time author or do you pretty much just get what you get? No, definitely. You will, you will, your, or your agent rather will negotiate it. So this is the, the downside of the way that traditional publishing works on one hand is that you have to have a literary agent typically to get your foot in the door. They don't accept manuscript submissions from authors directly. You have to get the literary agent and and it can be hard to get a literary agent. But the upside is once you do, your literary agent is going to earn 15% of um, 15% commission on the revenue that they generate for you. That's how that's, that's the standard. So you won't, you don't pay the literary agent outright. They just earn commission on their work for you. And it's definitely worth the commission because they, they will negotiate, they will negotiate um, the best possible deal for you and, you know, go out to multiple publishers. Um, If multiple publishers are interested, the agent will host an auction where they'll bid against each other, which will also get your advance size up. So this is how advances can, can grow over time is, is through this process that is being led by your literary agent. I, right, I'm going to shift too, because I want to make sure we talk about something I'm geeking out over today, the Enneagram types and how that feeds into the creative process. And so how does that fit into your creative process or what you're teaching to your students right now? So I, yeah, I'm a huge Enneagram fan. I, um, I for a long time thought I was a seven and have in the last year realized I'm a three. Oh, which that's was a big jump. Like an existential crisis. I know <laughs> it was a big, it was a big jump, and it was um, 
Although I've since learned that threes and sevens do often mix themselves up. Um, but I, I really felt confident I was a seven. And then I was actually working with an Enneagram coach who said, I think you're a three. Um, and I realized that I, I actually am. I'm just sort of like an untraditional three um, in some ways. But I love this. I love the Enneagram as a way to understand ourselves. And I, I, I've seen it. It's made a big difference in my life. And my, my husband is an eight. Um, we, we, like, it comes up in our conversation a lot, how we're both motivated based on our Enneagram number. And, and, um, and I find it helpful, like a helpful communication tool in that way. So anyway, it, it, because it made such a difference in my personal life, I brought it into working with writers because I realized, oh, well, this is um, like, since it's a tool and a way for us to understand our own motivations, and since writing is so much about motivation, we can use the Enneagram to try to make our writing lives better. <laughs> and that was a really that was a really cool thing to unlock because, um, you know, I think we, we all in some ways, I think as writers, there, there are some universal things that we deal with like resistance and writer's block and insecurity and imposter syndrome and all that stuff. Um, but there's also like, there are different motivations behind those experiences and, and we, we all respond differently to kind to like solutions for getting around them. And so, yeah, I love to think of the Enneagram as a way to understand what might work. So for example, um, if I'm working with a writer and they take the Enneagram test and they find out that they are, say, a two, which is the helper. So the so twos um, really make, they're kind of identified by like doing for others. So your friend who's a two is probably the one who like remembers everyone's birthdays and is <laughs> always up for hosting dinner and is like helping out um, and is there for you. And so if someone, if a writer is a two, then what could be going, not necessarily because everyone's different, but what could be going on is when they struggle to carve out time to write, it's because they feel like they shouldn't like they feel guilty about it or like it's infringing on time they should be spending taking care of someone else. And so talking about that, how that feels and how to find, find ways to create writing goals that don't feel like they're sacrificing um, their obligations to others can help them actually get it done. So maybe instead of saying, you know, I'm going to write every day from 7am to 8am or something, or I'm going to write for three hours a day. Not that anyone does that, but <laughs> I'm going to write for an hour a day. Um, they say, I'm going to make sure that I get five pages written today, but I don't know when that will happen. They could happen at any time. We could have a page in the morning. We could have two pages in the middle of the day and, and two pages later at night. doesn't matter when. I'll just work that around the other stuff I have to do, but I'm going to get the five pages done. So, you know, because there, there are different ways of, of setting writing goals. You can set a time block, right? Like I am going to write from 7 to 8 a.m. every morning. Or you could say, I'm going to write for three 25 minute bursts today. I'll just find where they are like the Pomodoro method, or I'm going to write five pages today. That that's the one I tend to go for is like the page count. Cause I like to write by hand on a first draft and that's just an easy way for me to work it in or word, a word count. You know, a lot of writers use word count. Like I'm going to write a thousand words today. And then the last kind of writing goal that, 
that I love and that I find works well for a lot of people, particularly people writing novels or, or fiction is decide is, is just deciding they're going to write one scene a day. So I'm going to write one scene, you know, and scene is an amorphous thing. Like there's no set definition. We're not, you don't decide, Oh, it has to be a thousand words or it has to be, you know, 2000 words. You just say, I'm going to write the scene at the mall and then when that's done, it's done. Whether it's a 300 word scene or a 3000 word scene, whatever it ends up being, you've done your thing for the day. And the cool thing about scenes as a goal is that most scenes end up falling somewhere between a thousand and 2000 words. And so when you have kind of 30, like 35 to to 70 of them, you have a book. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. So you can think, okay, well, if, if 50 scenes makes a book, then I'm going to write a scene a day for the next 50 days and I'll have a book. Anyway, sorry, I got a little bit off from the Enneagram. But but if, if those are the types of, of writing goals that, and, and I'm sure there are others too, but those are those are the most typical ones that I talk about, then we can use the Enneagram and then just our own understanding of our own personalities to decide which ones work best in our lives. Do you think there's an Enneagram type that maybe shouldn't write a book or, or maybe like if you're an eight, you should self-publish and not work within the industry or, or, you know, are there any weird oddities like that? I don't think there's any type that should write a book. Although it's funny you mentioned eight because since my husband is an eight, he, I asked him when I was putting together this material on the best writing goals for different Enneagram numbers, I said, what, which of these would work best for you as an eight? And he said, Oh, as an eight, I would just hire someone else to write the book for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I feel the, I kind of feel the same way. I haven't, I haven't taken the Enneagram, but I'm like knowing, you know, what they are. I'm like, huh, I might be an eight. I, you know, maybe. <laughs> yeah. We're Rob, we're going to, we're going to dive deep into this. I want the two of us to figure out what we are and, how it impacts our relationship. So we're going to dive deep soon. Yes. Oh, don't I'm you so worry. Glad you're going to do that. Do you know what you are, Kara? You don't know yet? I'm pretty sure I'm a four. Okay, nice. That's probably the most common Enneagram number of writers that, that I work with are four, is four, which makes sense because it's the artist. <laughs> because it's very, it's very feeling, it's very feeling focused and emotional, right? From what I understand. Yeah. So, okay. Is there an Enneagram number that shouldn't write a book? No, although definitely not. I would definitely say no, but I do think like there are Enneagram numbers that are going to have a harder time. Like a one, one, a, ones are often perfectionists. So I think it can be really tough for a one to keep going. Like you mentioned a minute ago, Rob, going back and rereading and thinking that was terrible. Like, I feel like that's a big struggle for a one. So like, I, I think like, I feel like there's no number that I haven't worked with, but, but everybody just has a different problem. Like for a nine, the struggle can just be showing up and getting it done. Um, for a one, it's being perfectionistic. Um, for a five, it's getting bogged down in, in research for fours and sixes. It's like wondering if it's good enough. Sevens, it's kind of having new ideas and wanting to start something different. Um, I mentioned two already. Threes, I mean, this is maybe why, you know, I tend to churn out things pretty quickly. Like I, I think for threes who are very goal oriented, uh, getting it done threes and eights, actually, I think for both threes and eights, getting it done once we decide to do it usually isn't the problem. It's like f feeling like it's worth doing in the first place and then committing to it. Okay. My last question is a little bit different, but you know, through the seven years that you went through, and of course, 
other authors, writers, even copywriters working with clients, we tend to get a lot of rejection, a lot of no's. Will you give us just one or two secrets for dealing with that and continuing on knowing that eventually some success, something's going to happen, but we've got to get through the dip or the dips as they come along? Yeah. So, okay. Yes. I have two thoughts. So one is I, I always found it really uh, encouraging to look up how many rejections, like, you know, all of the best writers got <laughs> like, you know, that like Harry Potter being rejected 70 times or something. I mean, I don't remember if that's the exact statistic, but that just though looking those things up just always gave me so much calm. Stephen King got rejected like a whole bunch and was living in his van or something. I mean, I, I, I think anytime you, you need encouragement, Google like rejections of famous writers and you'll, you'll realize that it, it's just, it's such a good reminder that it's part of the process. Like you said, it's just, it happens to all of us and it's just part of the process. Um, so in that way, it's not personal. It's just, this is what it takes. And then the other thing too, is like, to go back to what we, we were talking about at the beginning, I think it can be helpful to just like really, really be sure to notice anything positive anyone says, because of course we, we focus on the negative. We focus on the rejection and I mean, I'm, I'm the worst culprit when it comes to this. If I get a hundred reviews of a book on Amazon and 99 of them are great, I, I'm going to memorize the one that's like, this is a terrible book. <laughs> um, like I'm going to memorize it. I'm going to, you know, talk about it. I'm going to feel sad about it and just ignore all the glowing ones. And I think that's a really normal thing to do. But when it comes to rejection, one thing that I've noticed is that the people were typically the, those who are, are, are rejecting, they don't mince words. So, so they're not, um, if they say anything positive, they're not saying it to make you feel good. They're saying it because they mean it. So if it's like, um, and in my case, I work with writers who are pitching literary agents and, and an agent will say, well, this book isn't for me, but I'm sure you're going to find representation for it. If they say that, they mean that. And that, that says a lot about your writing. If they say this isn't for me, but this is really strong writing. They mean that they truly mean that it's strong writing. They're not, you know, they're not blowing smoke. Like they're, they, they wouldn't say that if, if it weren't true, if they didn't really believe it. So, so I think paying attention and, and, and kind of bringing awareness to those little bits of affirmation that are coming through, no matter how small is important to do. And also, and finally one more, which is remembering that it only takes one. So you only need one person to accept whether it, whatever the pitch is, whether it's getting a literary agent or um, sending something out there, like you only need one person to take it. I, I feel like when I think about every publication success I've ever had from essays to articles to books, I've pretty much like, I, I can think of only one or two times where I had more than one person wanting it. <laughs> Every other time it, it was like a lot of rejection followed by one yes. And that yes became why it was published. All right, Mary, I know we're at the end of our time with you. I know we could continue talking and I hope that we do. But for now, can you share where our listeners can go to find out more about your your programs, to learn more about you, to connect with you? Yes, they can go to maryadkinswriter.com and it's Atkins with a D like dog, not like tea, like the diet. So maryadkinswriter.com 
like writing, not writing a horse.com. And they can learn about me and my program, the book incubator there. And also I think we're going to, you said we'll link to the, that post on what, what advanced sizes are for authors and what you can make based on genre as well. And of course your books are available at Amazon and libraries around the world. So check those out too. Yeah. Totally. All right. Thank you, Mary. We appreciate it. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Thank you both. It was fun. That's the end of our interview with Mary. I've made a bunch of notes about the second half of the interview. One of the things, Kira, that interested me the most is we asked Mary, or I asked Mary about rejection, and she talked about you know, going back and looking at some of the writers, famous writers who have been rejected. And I did that. I looked them up and I, I'm just going to like list off a couple because I think this is pretty amazing. So I think she mentioned Stephen King and J.K. Rowling. Uh, Stephen King was rejected 30 times before Carrie was accepted as a book. And his his advance was pretty small. It was just, I think, like $2,500. The paperback rights later sold for like 10 times as much because it was, you know, such a hit. Dr. Seuss, he was rejected 27 times before his first book was published. Um, Jack Canfield, who wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul books, rejected 144 times before those got made into books. And they've been, I think, bestsellers for the 30 years since they were published. Like they've, they've literally sold hundreds of millions of copies. So um, a few others, Robert Parsick, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, 121 rejections. Elmore Leonard's first book, the Big Bounce was rejected 84 times and it's since been published and also been made into a movie twice, two different movies. Um, the Help uh, by Catherine Stockett was rejected 60 times. James Patterson, like the best selling novelist of all time, his first book was rejected 31 times. So there's a theme here uh, and that is that uh, book publishers don't always recognize what, what everybody else wants. And, I, and we can take this also to copywriting, you know, like, pitching and so many of the things that we put out there, we face rejection too. And I think the takeaway here is keep going because it's not until you get through the rejections that you actually find the success. Well said. I like that. So I'm not going to add to that, but I'm going to shift and talk about, I'm going to shift gears <laughs> and talk about the Enneagram because I am obsessed with it. Yes, you are. We will have an episode where we just talk about that soon. We're going to work on that. But um, I found it interesting. I do find it interesting to just think about which number you are and how that could play into your creative process. And so using tools um, like the Enneagram to think about how you may move forward with the book um, or how, how you may work with others, how Rob and I work together. And we recently found out that Rob is a five, right? You're a five? No, I I'm a four. Wait, no, I'm no, you're a five. five. You're right. I am a five. I'm a five. Although if I had answered like one question differently, I could have been an eight. So I kind of guessed, no, no, I guessed really closely. I listened to it and I'm, I'm a, very clear that you're a five. I'm a we, five dash eight. I'm going to insist on this. I, so, okay. Why fine. do you want to be an eight? I don't, I don't know. Eight, I am so a, I am a five, but I will sometimes identify as an eight. How about that? Okay. Well, we, we'll revisit all of this and have. <laughs> Maybe Linda will have somebody take us apart on the Enneagram. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But um, I think that's fun that we just touched on that briefly with Mary and thinking through how um, how we can rethink our process based off um, how we operate and how we move through this world and our strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. I think, you know, tests, personality tests like Enneagram uh, are fun because, you know, you, you 
learn something about yourself in the process, but knowing that people approach things in different ways can actually, you know, help in working with other people, um, you know, especially when you're in a partnership, like where we are, you know, me understanding your approach to work and um, how I need to, you know, talk with you or work with you in different ways than I might with somebody else on our team. Right. And so it's kind of fun like that, but um, it, it can be eye opening. Uh, I think the message, though, that Mary, uh, you know, when I asked, you know, is there a type that shouldn't write a book is no, we can all do it. And so personality type isn't one of those things that would keep us from writing, but it might affect the way we approach the process. Yeah, I mean, Rob, I'm self-absorbed and melancholic and um, I need to be the special one. So I'm not sure how fives you are, yeah. You, you and I are probably like the worst mix of, uh, of possible. <laughs> At least we fans. both but, aren't melancholic and self-absorbed. I mean, only one of us can be that way. That's true. So that's good. That's a win. Yeah, that is true. Anything else before we wrap? So one other thing that I would say is going back to the beginning of the interview, and that is right before you feel you're ready, and then get feedback on what it is that you're writing, and that applies if you're writing a book. That applies if you're writing copy. That applies if you're starting some kind of a project in your business. Start before you feel ready and get help from the people that can help you. And I think that really is the big takeaway from me. And then just keep at it. Whatever that project is, keep at it. Power through the rejection and eventually you're going to succeed. Yeah, and it could be as simple as just writing to your list if you aren't doing that currently and just you know, testing different ideas. Maybe that's how you test different book ideas. It's putting different topics out there, seeing what resonates, what sticks, um, sending that to your list, you know, twice a month and you can gather data that way too. All right. Well, if you are listening and you want to connect with Mary, uh, we will leave her information in the show notes so you can reach out to her directly. And if you want to join the waitlist for the Copywriter Accelerator, and build your business with us or pivot or start to to really scale it you can jump into the waitlist uh, uh, in our show notes we'll drop the link in there this week's review shout out is from listener ethan forrest ross and i'm just going to read the whole thing it's a it's a little long but we appreciate the feedback so it says and it's a five-star review so thank you for that ethan the copywriter club podcast is my anthem for what copywriting is and should be kira and rob's credible yet humble approach wow i'm patting myself on the back right now ethan uh, <laughs> approach is accessible for copywriters at all levels each week the guests on the podcast are excellent and the questions discussion from the host is poignant. I've learned the value of systems and automation tips on the art of cold pitching and the importance of consistent follow-up because it's never a no until the person says so. Most importantly, I now understand that a copywriter is someone who solves problems and that there is great value in maturing beyond the role of a mere wordsmith into the strategist, consultant, and business owner in my own right. And then this is maybe the only drawback of this uh, review. The only problem is... Kira and Rob have ruined other podcasts for me. So we're sorry about that, Ethan. Yeah, but thank you for your review. Thank you for listening. We do appreciate that. And if you want us to mention you, uh, like we just did with Ethan on a future podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It just takes a couple of minutes and we actually are interested in your feedback. Of course, we love it when you say nice things, but um, if there's something that we can improve too, we want to know about that also. I don't want to know about that. Just send that to Rob. <laughs> yeah, I want positive reviews like the one from Ethan because this keeps me going. 
Um, I live off of these positive affirmations, so keep them coming. If you have negative feedback, just again, send that send to that Rob. To I, don't I can that. take it. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you liked what you've heard, you could share a screenshot of this episode uh, and post your favorite takeaway. What was your favorite takeaway from this episode? And tag us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club.